today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, is there a double standard when it comes to nipples and the Super Bowl halftime show? Or should we even care? The federal conservatives have uh, had to pull a parody of a Heritage Minute. Below the belt? And Marvin Ryder from DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, explains to us the growth of Asia and how this is their century. It's all coming up. Thanks for listening. Talking about uh, the Super Bowl, and we're going to bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant PR for Alyssa Freeman, uh, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR, and talk about the marketing side of this, the uh, ads that everybody talks about, and, of course, the halftime show and that nipple. Both of them. We saw both of them. I remember after the Janet Jackson thing, where, what are we looking at? What? What happened here? What? what uh, where's the nipple? Everybody was slowing it down, freezing the frame. Things weren't as digitized as they are now. Well, oh, there it is. What is that? It sort of looks like a crescent moon. Is that what I'm focusing on here? Is that her? I can't. I, and then there's uh, Adam jumping around. There's both of them. Woohoo, woohoo, woohoo. Shouldn't he have had pasties on? Alyssa Freeman is with us now. Hi, Alyssa. How are you? <laughs> I'm sorry. Would we, would we still be that talking if he was... Not, not my best intro, but honestly, that was the I... pasties. You got me at pasties. That's well, well, you know, would we be talking about this if he was wearing pasties? Maybe could get one to spin one direction and one the other? Maybe, uh, in addition. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, all right. So let's talk about. Uh, we'll get to halftime in a sec. Talk about um, uh, the ads and such. Uh, is this still the event television that, uh, that that advertisers are flocking to and begging for and spending more money on, or do or, or do do companies question whether they want to be associated with this brand now? Well, I have to say that to answer your question right now, post-Super Bowl, the answer is yes. There are as many spots. I think they sold out all their spots. Advertisers still know that it is the biggest audience, one of the biggest audiences globally. And I don't know what the numbers are right now, but even if they were just down a little, it still you know, doesn't compare to anything else that people watch. Yeah. And, you know, what do they get, $5 million for 30 seconds? And then on top of that, you have to create your own ad. You know, it's a, it's a huge expenditure. But when you think about the amount of eyeballs that you're going to get at one time, then it does make sense for a lot of advertisers. Uh, the fact that uh, nobody's really excited about the presentation as far as the game or even the halftime show at this point, does that matter? It's like, no, you're a part of it. Everybody's, even though they're saying how bad it was, everybody's still talking about it and you're there. Well, you know, this is it. And the halftime show, you know, they said they were getting Maroon 5. And I have to say, okay, I mean, I like Maroon 5 as much as the next guy, although I did read one tweet when they did have somebody uh, compare Maroon 5 as Canada's Nickelback, which kind of made me laugh. But uh, I, I was I was underwhelmed by the halftime show. I thought it was okay. I, I don't know. It, I, maybe it was because the game itself was such a low-scoring game and, you know, punt, 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 and there wasn't that much action by the time it got to the halftime show. It puts more emphasis on the halftime show, maybe. Well, it does. And, 
you know, it, it was what it was. And, you know, I was watching it with my daughter, and she sees the fireball come out, you know, that introduces Travis Scott. And she thought that that was fantastic. So yeah. I have to say that these halftime shows try to appeal to a dual demographic. They try to appeal to people of, you know, my, you're my age who still watch football and still may like Maroon 5. And then, you know, you get Travis Scott and Big Boy out for the younger demographic yeah. to keep them interested in the NFL. So, you know, it, it's not an easy gig to plan or to program. There was a little bit of, uh, you know, consternation against some of the artists who were not interested in supporting the Super Bowl for reasons that seemed to revolve around Colin Kaepernick. So, you know, Rihanna didn't want to play. Yeah. There was a lot of hip-hop artists out of Atlanta that didn't want to play. Big Boy was the exception to that. So it is a difficult thing to plan and for everybody to sort of fall in line with. But what happens? Because, you know, normally if you got called to play the Super Bowl gig, you were there. I mean, it's always been the biggest and the best. So um, now are we seeing a trend here where all of a sudden now uh, acts are going to question this? What happens next year? Well, I think it depends what happens with the NFL uh, throughout this year. You know, it's, it's really hard to predict in 12 months how the NFL is going to react to any situation that's thrown their way. You know, if you look at history, they're a little bit weak on things, and there are, they are slow to respond. And only when pushed to the wall will they respond, whether it's about taking a knee or whether it's about punishing a player who has been accused of uh, domestic abuse. So the NFL seems to have its, its own set of rules as to what they consider a crisis and what they don't. And if the Colin Kaepernick um, issue does not die down, it'll be some. It, it will be an issue that will continue to dog them. So, do you think playing this gig is 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 the is the once shiny accomplishment that it always was? You know, I I think it still is in the eyes of many people, but I think that. You know, even if you look at the ads, Scott, I mean, some of them were straight out funny. And then some of them were, you know, ads that had a social conscious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was such as the, um, I think it was one of the Budweiser, yeah. uh, Budweiser ads. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, if you look in the past 10 years, you know, when you had maybe 6% of ads that used to do social conscious ads, and then you, that has grown to over 30%. So, you know, sometimes if a musical act has a, um, a platform or wants to use their platform for a message, they may take the Super Bowl. The NFL is very careful not to pick artists that seem to have a platform and that want to say something that may not jive with, you know, who they think they are. They did a lot of bleeping during Travis Scott. So basically he said, yeah, I'll play, but I'm not changing my lyrics for you. Mm -hmm. So they have the guy in the booth with with his finger on the seven-second button following Mm -hmm. along and pushing the button when he needed to. So, you know, that was quite blatant. But for the people who were there, they heard every word. Um, Many thought that there was going to be some sort of message during this uh, halftime show because of the hype leading up to it and and people bowing out and such. Uh, There really wasn't any of that. And then to boot, to to peel the shirt off, and again, I don't want to make too much out of this because, you know, I mean, how many performers have there been out there that tear their shirts off on stage and, 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 um, you know, while they're doing a concert or such? Um, 
but to 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 I guess assume there's going to be some sort of meaningful message and then have that happen, d- does it fit? Uh, are we complaining too much about nothing? Should we should we care if Adam Levine took off his shirt or not? Well, I was actually surprised at how many tattoos he really does have. There you were. You were up there just like the cat, so, like right in the dog, right that's up that's next that's to the screen, weren't you? you know, no, no, not next to. That didn't need to be next to the screen. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but I will say this, and there are some people who do, do take offense. I mean, listen, I you can look at it one of two ways. You can look at it that Anna Levine was hyped up by the performance. Obviously, it was near the end of the end of the uh, set. He was very pleased with the way things were going, and that and that everything ran smoothly, and that the crowd was responding positively, and he felt really good. And his expression of joy was to whip off his shirt. There you go. You can say the same thing about Janet Jackson, though. Oh, right up leading to there. all of that, I'm thinking, okay, she's going to talk about there. Janice Jackson. Or... I'm getting there. Go so ahead. what's okay for, you know, Adam Levine to whip off his shirt and we can see a man's nipples. We have a totally different set of rules when we want to see or when a woman exposes her nipple. Right. And there are some people who saw that very, very loud and clear. So do I think that Adam Levine uh, was making a statement about whipping off his shirt? I don't know. I think that we're really reading into his motivation uh, of that action. But if you want to read into what that could mean in the aftermath or what the ripple effect of that was in people's minds, then yes, that's why we're discussing it today. What if it was a, and I don't know what the equal, uh, uh, um, activity would have been for a woman if she was up there but say it was a lady gaga say it was a beyonce and did something similar or something that would have you know i don't know did it shock us that adam took his shirt off not really i guess the point was is oh he took his shirt off but you're not supposed to do that anymore so uh, what what would have happened if a female had done something you know again you can't bear your breasts but something equally as suggestive oh my gosh scott all hell would have broken loose we have so? the dial at all when it comes to objectification of women's body parts. Had Lady Gaga or someone of her celebrity status taken off her top to reveal her breasts, you know, forget what Kim Kardashian does to break the internet. This would have broken every, everything, everything. You know, viewership, the internet. Well, I remember when, you know, when Shania Twain was popular way back when, and it was always the midriff and whatever, and, and so on and so forth, and then sort of did a, a, a relaunch a year ago where in a Vegas residency and such, and people, oh, geez, you know what? Should she be doing that now? Me Too movement and all? Has what, it changed? her midriff? Well, the Me Too movement is about women feeling comfortable about being women. So if Shania Twain, at her age, can bear her midriff, Listen, I wish I could, but I'm not going to. All right? I feel the same I way. Mean, I've got a flight six-pack, but nothing that I'm going to flaunt on national TV <laughs> or in my local gym, as you know, as the case may be. So, you know, the fact that women being able to dress how they want it should be reflective of, you know, their choice and not to be criticized for it. So for people to criticize Shania Twain's midriff, still means that we're living in the dark ages where we think a woman should be covered up from head to toe. So should we be upset that Avril, or Avril that uh, Adam Levine peeled off his shirt? I think what it shows is, is that we haven't moved the needle at all when it comes to what is okay for women. is, is uh, it, What is not okay for women is okay for men. 
And, you know, you think that over, like, when when was the whole uh, Janet Jackson debacle with uh, Justin Timberlake? It was, it was over a, a decade ago, ago yeah. at least. Yeah. So people's thoughts about the human body certainly haven't changed at all. And the fact that Adam Levine would off his shirt, I think, you know, from my perspective was like, okay, well, you know, did he need to do that? I mean, who cares? Do I want to see Adam Levine's chest? But the fact of the matter is, is that he could. Yeah. Yeah, he can and, get away with it. Yep. You know, nobody was going to say, oh, cover up. Should you be doing that in the era of Me Too? No, there's no such rules with men, uh, you know, vis-a-vis how they should dress or what they should bear. But certainly there are rules made by mainly men on how a woman should present herself. And that if she is bearing her midriff, she is inherently, quote-unquote, asking for it. Well, why is that? Who made it? Who made that assumption? Certainly not another woman. Uh, does this just show what a divisive society we have? Doesn't matter. Someone's going to get ticked off. That's right. I mean, you know, and and look at social media too, Scott. You know, anybody with a keyboard sitting in a room can have an opinion, no matter whether it's thought out or not. They can just still have an opinion. You know, before you and I talk on certain topics, often what I'll do is I will go onto Twitter to see what you know people are saying, and all you have to do is put in whatever catchphrase it is that we're talking about. And you will see, without fail, uh, you know, not everybody's ever I've, uh, that I've ever seen all 100% aligned behind any issue, but it usually goes right down the middle to abject horror or absolutely supporting it. So the fact that social media is there, it adds another layer onto how fast we see reaction um, over an event. And whether we think it's a big deal or not, if social media makes it a big deal, we'll know about it in five minutes. All right, I want to touch on this Heritage Minute. We all know what Heritage Minutes are. Um, uh, I think they do a few of them a year, a couple of, the, of them a year, highlighting some great point in Canadian history and uh, and bring it to our attention. Uh, it, it, it The uh, federal conservatives thought they would do one as a parody. Here is a sample. Do we got it? In over 150 years, Canada has had many Prime Ministers leading many governments. Some Prime Ministers were good, some great, but never had one been fined for breaking the law while in office. Until one day. Uh, I have... um, Not only did Justin Trudeau break the law, he set an example for his cabinet. They would go on to be questioned by the Ethics Commissioner for failing to disclose an entire French villa they owned giving a $24 million fishing license to their own family members and blowing $3,700 of taxpayers' money on a limousine ride from a campaign volunteer. We work... uh, I'm just trying to reorder reorder the thoughts. We... um, Canada had never seen a government break so many federal ethics and conflict of interest laws before. Justin Trudeau had made history. Unfortunately. All right, and there you have it, and it's all packaged to look like one of those uh, heritage minutes. Uh, Alyssa, your thoughts? Uh, why go here? Exactly. You know, there were a million ways to get across that point of view that the conservatives were trying to get across, and instead they took a direct ripoff of a platform or an articulation that we all recognize as a vehicle to teach us about our country's history. I, for one, like the Heritage Minutes because they remind me of our history 
And not only that, but I, I might even learn something new. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do them, which I think is the mandate of Historica Canada's um, value around creating Heritage Minutes, is that it reminds us of our history, even if you haven't learned it in school over a long period of time. So for the Conservatives to lampoon, it's not even lampooning, it's, the issue here is, is that they took a format to create a political, a biased political message. And, you know, Historica Canada has been lampooned in a funny way, you know, perhaps by this hour has 22 minutes, oh, and, you know, in their own sort of articulation right. of, of the minutes. Sure. But it has never been leveraged for political gain. Yeah. And I absolutely see their point here. And they asked for an apology, and they asked for the video to be removed. Mm-hmm. So what did the Conservatives do? Well... They issued some. They issued a statement that says this in no way reflects or is meant to reflect uh, a Historica Canada minute, and they did not um, take down the video. So in essence, what happened was is that draws more attention to Historica it. Canada right added fuel to the fire. Yeah. So I don't know how it's jumped in terms of views, but I can only imagine that it has. And this is still not sitting well with Historica Canada, and for very good reason. So, uh, so you know, it still airs. It's drawn attention to itself. So what is it in this message that the Conservatives would see positive? At what point does the, does the positive outweigh the negative? Because the negative is obviously, well, it's, it's not credible. You're, you're goofing around about things. Why not just give somebody a straight spot about what you think? But many have said, unless it's populist and it's like this, it doesn't resonate with anybody, whereas this sort of stuff resonates. So how low do you have to go to k- still keep the people, or just to get the people interested? Well, I would hope that you don't have to go low. And I think that, the, you know, the average Canadian and the average Canadian voter, you know, hopefully sees through this and sees that, you know, it's not an appropriate way to get across a, a political message. If you have an important political message, you know, figure out your own creative as, a, as opposed to ripping one off, number one. And I just don't think that the articulation, I mean, I get their point. There is some serious points in that message, but the fact that they because it's a parody platform, yeah, yeah, because it's a parody, no one takes it seriously. Well, I think so, and 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 I think that it's. I just think it's really dirty tricks, and and I certainly don't feel good about watching it. Uh, one person writes, uh, "Sure, CBC in this hour has twenty two minutes, air them all the time." But then again, that's a that's a, a comedic platform. That's a bit different than a political party, no? It's much different, and they're using it for political gain. So it is much different. And Historica Canada makes it very clear that the minutes are not to be used for political bias. And the Conservatives chose to ignore that, thinking, well, we're going to get a little bit of flack about this. But maybe what it'll do is that it'll draw even more attention to our ad than it ever would have before. So, you know, I have to say they didn't do this as an accident. I think that that this was completely planned out. I think they knew what would happen with the backlash. I think they would do, I think they knew they would have an initial stopgap measure until at some point they decided to take the video down. But by that time, it's run and lots of people have seen it. So, you know, full marks on their strategy, but it doesn't mean you have to like it. Uh, at the end of the day, do they, getting back to my original question, do we have to do this? Do we have to package things this way in order to get the public's attention? Are they that stupid? It's not that they're that stupid, but I think that your your note about getting the public's attention is always top of mind. 
So if you want to get the public's attention, you're always looking for a vehicle to break through the clutter. In this case, somebody thought it was a good idea to leverage a Historica Canada Minute. So some people may think that clever, obviously the people who created the ad, and some people may take offense to it. So I would just hope that with any um, future articulations, and we're going to see a lot of them now. I mean, you know, we are kind of in the run-up to a federal election, although the writ hasn't been dropped, but, it, you know, people are certainly thinking about their messaging. So we are going to start seeing a lot of these negative anti-Trudeau and probably anti-Schneer messages coming out. And so I would hope that people could be creative unto themselves as opposed to ripping off another platform. Isn't an ad like this preaching to the choir? Does this just appeal to the base? Because anyone who's on the line are probably going to take it the other way. Well, that's a strategy, Scott. So if it appeals to the base and the base likes it and they have to charge up their base because, yes, this is a run-up to the election, then mission accomplished. So if this was a charge-up-the-base ad, then, you know, obviously that was part of the strategy. That being said, is it worth the cost? I mean, you know, do you get enough jazz for the base out of this that it's worth ticking off the ones that are sitting on the fence? The base are going to be there anyway. But you still need to ensure that the base will come out and vote for you. I don't think in any election you can take any base for granted. You know, they've obviously done their market research. You know, perhaps the, um, you know, the, the research has told them that there might be low recognition of Andrew Schneer at this point. And what they need to do is really focus on the anti-Trudeau issues. So, you know, these guys do market research as often as they need to. And I'm sure that what they're doing is their research right now. So they'll slice and dice it. They'll ask conservatives, they'll ask non-conservatives, and they'll figure out their way on it, whether it was effective or not. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about, and I'm not, I'm not sure how you're going to in, interpret this. Because maybe we're making too much out of this, too. We talked about this uh, a little earlier on with uh, Alyssa Freeman, PR expert. And uh, this is in regard to the uh, Heritage Minute and, and just sort of the direction that political advertising is going and does this work? Do we have to make fun? Do we have to parody? Uh, but then, you know, uh, political parties will say, if we don't do a parody then nobody's going to even pay attention. If we just come up and say, here's what's wrong with the government, here's what we should do, no one's going to give a rat's rear end. No one's going to even know, no one's even going to hear the message. And I'm sure that's all our fault. Because either we don't say it, or when we do, it's fake. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. Um, that being said, do we need to stoop to this level to get the attention of the base? Do we need, par- or if the message is delivered in parody, does it lose credibility? Because it seems with populists, that's a, another, uh, apparently another bad word, populism, um, this, it seems to have taken over the way we, the way political parties advertise, promote, whatever. You got to bring it down to the lowest common denominator. Get a laugh out of it. Then you've got a successful message. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, has served as advisor to national party leaders and federal cabinet ministers, and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, you're forgetting the most important part about the Super Bowl. Who cares about Adam Levine from a different perspective? Patriots, history, Tom Brady, maybe the greatest athlete ever, Bill Belichick, maybe the greatest coach ever. 
can't say that about the Tiger Cats, can you? Ooh, sorry. Oh, you know, I was just ready there to yawn through that, Tim, and then you stabbed us. <laughs> <laughs> All you right. You me next time I go to the new stadium down there. I still view it as new with that Tim Hortons field. There, there you, you go. go. All right. So uh, we're going to play this Heritage Minute one more time. It starts off a little slow, but bear with us here, and uh, I will ask you what you think. Here it is here. Heritage Moment Parody. In over 150 years, Canada has had many Prime Ministers leading many governments. Some Prime Ministers were good, some great, but never had one been fined for breaking the law while in office. Until one day. Uh, I have... Um, Not only did Justin Trudeau break the law, he set an example for his cabinet. They would go on to be questioned by the Ethics Commissioner for failing to disclose an entire French villa they owned giving a $24 million fishing license to their own family members and blowing $3,700 of taxpayers' money on a limousine ride from a campaign volunteer. We work, uh, we're just trying to reorder, reorder the thoughts. We, um... Canada had never seen a government break so many federal ethics and conflict of interest laws before. Justin Trudeau had made history. Unfortunately. All right. And it's all, uh, you, you know, and I guess the point is they could have done all of that and, you know, played the clips of him, you know, you can do all of that without sort of putting it into a parody of a historic moment. I mean, you just play the message. Here, here's what he's doing. Um, does it lose? Does it lose credibility because it's done? Uh, via parody. Uh, Kevin writes, I like it. It's great for the PCs. The video's right on. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> do you have to do this in order to appeal to the base? Yeah, but it's more than that, right? I mean, I'm sure there was actually an error here, but that error turned into an opportunity. I'm sure somebody de- forgot and didn't deliberately um, put in a rider to acknowledge it wasn't done by Historica. But the conservatives probably feel like they're winning because this ad, which didn't cost much to make by the look of it or, or, or to record, is getting amplified all over the place now. This is a well-honed tactic by political parties to you know, produce some ad, uh, to have it have be a little bit controversial either through the process that it went about or didn't go about in making uh, and or by subject matter and then have the conversation be all about the ad. Uh, I don't think too many Canadians like your man there, Kevin, are going to get real fussed about you know, whether the proper guidelines were, uh, were followed as it related to Historica. And I'd say this too, Scott, Historica's probably happy today too now. Uh, because they're in the news being talked about, and that isn't often the case. So I love it. Know, they're out there selling the message, though. Hey, we're nonpartisan. We don't like our stuff being used that way. Like what? They seem like they're upset, but you know, deep down, they're just yelling all the way to the bank, aren't they? Because they, yeah, they got I, I mean, extra. Look, it's beneficial for both sides to appear to be agitated for different reasons. The conservatives agitated because they feel oh. You know, I don't know why people are so upset. We did this all in Historica Agitated because their their purpose is not to be partisan. And uh, I think both maybe will feel like they come out winners in the end. As it relates to the ad, 
I've seen lots of commentary on that aforementioned Twitter machine when they're not talking about Adam Levine's nipples, talking about this. And, uh, you know, it seems to be, oh, frat boys in the conservative OLO. And, yeah, that's a fair comment, except (laughs) the frat boys will feel like, as I say, they've achieved a bit of a victory because this story's gone on for two hours. We're not talking about Super Bowl commercials. We're not talking about um, other great issues of the day, in part because there aren't many. We're talking about this, and they get to see people who want to check out the ad to determine if all the... Uh, all, all of the fire-breathing angst is necessary. They, they, they are now looking at that ad, and the conservatives will probably be, hey, that's what our intended purpose was. And guess what? We didn't have to buy it. We didn't have to put it on your radio network or anybody else because people are just playing it for free for us. It would be interesting to see how much traffic went up to the Historica website after this. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, so, I, I mean, Anthony Wilson-Smith, uh, the CEO of Historica, has say what he's saying, and I'm sure in part he is agitated that they've been brought into the partisan fray. His board of directors would want him to play that role. I see the Globe has just put out a story saying, you know, some Historica members have stopped donating because of this. Well, (laughs) there may be more that are about to. Uh, And Historica hasn't rushed to to file a lawsuit, because the other side of all of this, I guess, too, is they they are cognizant of the fact that uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, if they if they do that right away and they don't let the story continue, then uh, they mightn't get the attention that they are getting now, which, as I say, could be valuable to them. So, in other words, we've got a message here. They're all in the back war room there. we got a message. We're trying to make this guy look like a bumbling fool. There's so many ways we can do it. Yeah, but if we just do that, no one will notice that. But if we create a little controversy first, if we step on a couple of toes while doing it, then that will actually generate more, uh, uh, more attention and more eyes will be on the message. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, you're talking about parody. I'm somewhat delighted, even though it can be, it, it, this isn't great humor or an attempt at humor. I'd rather this than some of the nasty, awful stuff that we see. I mean, I'm glad the conservatives, of somebody who has that inclination, are showing some degree of personality around all of all of this. Uh, uh, and I, I, better this than some of the stuff we see uh, see in the United States for sure. The, the, the liberals are interesting on this. I've seen uh, some of their senior people push out the Anthony Wilson Smith message, and uh, they certainly, you know, would want to do that because there will be many purists, um, but they're probably already aligned who will find this awful, and this is a terrible technique that conservatives are using. Again, I don't think the conservatives are worried about that group. They're looking again for that, you know, five or ten percent of Canadians who aren't necessarily aligned. We'll check this out, and it might help them in their quest to to brand the, cons- the the liberal government is not up for the job. The other thing I should say, I guess, as it relates to Anthony Wilson Smith's concern, as I think he has pointed out, Historica does receive some public funding. So, if he wants to continue to receive that public funding, he would also not just as a requirement of his board saying you need to do this, need to do it because he would have to stand against partisan activities because he would want to make sure that his paymaster, regardless of party, uh, is happy and that they think they're, uh, they're doing all that they should to defend the, the historic brand, which means defending their funding, too.
You brought up an interesting point, Tim, about, you know, better this than perhaps uh, the negative and, and destructive ads that we sometimes see coming out of the U.S. So um, would would people perhaps view something like this, which would probably be uh, interpreted as a negative message, but because it's done in parody, because it's done with humor, then it's not so bad. It's not yeah, as bad as those yeah, U.S. ads. I think people are, might be a little bit more predisposed to, you know, uh, pay attention to it. It reminds me of, and I'm showing my age here, but I think it was in the 2000 campaign when the PCs were led by Joe Clark and they were fighting for survival. You remember there was a whole bunch of funny things then. Rick Mercer who was then on this hour's 22 Minutes, who's also, by the way, done a riff on Historica ads. Oh, yeah. Conservatives. Uh, did a great thing uh, that I thought was brilliant at the time. He had a petition that they ran through this hour's 22 minutes to change Stockwell Day's name to Doris Day, if you remember that. <laughs> also, during that campaign in 2000, John Lassinger, who was leading Joe Clark's campaign, did a riff on the KTEL, the old KTEL ads about, you know, greatest hits. So this stuff has been done before, and people remembered that commercial in and around that campaign because it was funny and it was a bit different and it was low budget. Uh, so what political parties are looking for is these sorts of um, gimmicky things uh, that can get a greater audience because they're gimmicky, they're irritating or interesting depending on your lens, and people start talking about them. That's the game that's at play here, and it's not the first time it's been used, nor will it be the last. After the last election and the conservatives uh, did poorly, it was all ki- there were all kinds of chatter about a kinder, gentler uh, conservative party and, and, and not the mean old angry white guy kind of uh, image that, um, that they had uh, been given, I guess, under or mm-hmm. attained under uh, um, uh, Harper. Harper's. Thank, thank you for that. Um, so uh, d- does this... Does this change that? I mean, do we do? Are we looking at these guys still as being kinder and gentler when you're doing well, these sorts of ads? At what point? <laughs> at what point do you? Or again, because it's done in parody, it's a, it's a poke. It's not really, not really cutting anybody up. No. Well, I think they would like to be seen as a, a little bit more um, contemporary. I, I, they don't mind being mean, uh, and I think the liberals are going to come back and say, "Well, look how nasty they are." Chipping away at an institution like Historica, how dare they? That just means they're mean-spirited and insensitive and Mm. don't appreciate our historical institutions. The Prime Minister last week, just before his Liberal caucus meeting, was already invoking the Stephen Harper nasty comparison. So the Liberals are certainly going to want to keep that uh, that shading on the Conservatives. The Conservatives will try and mess around with it a little bit, I think, because they do want to be seen as a little bit more likable for that 5 to 10% I was talking about earlier. So there's a bit of everything in this uh, for for everybody, and they will appropriate it as political parties do, Scott, to their best means, and historical will try and reshape its relevance to the Canadian public. Shocking, that's how politics works. There's probably a lot of clips, just like uh, they were, the ones that were used in that Historica piece, uh, where it's not the Prime Minister's finest hour. Are, are they just going to hammer that message, the whole not ready thing, all the way through again? I mean, it, Yeah, they tried that before, and it didn't work. Um, but I think they think now, well, look, we told you he'd be like this after four years, and, and here are some of his 
in their words, finer moments, which of course won't be uh, won't be fine moments for the prime minister. Uh, they they see that I think is a bit of a vulnerability given what they sense and others, this has been reflected in polls, uh, tend to be viewing out there, and that's a fairly volatile environment. Uh, Again, it could all very much backfire on them. Um, the Prime Minister does a very good job of defying, or he did in the last election, defying expectations. He's a very good, and this is not meant to be a parody uh, or an ironic statement, he is a very good campaign performer. That being uh, said, has he overpromised, underdelivered? Oh, God, it, it, as, as every Prime Minister does. I yeah. mean, certainly, look, on the Indigenous front, yes. On electoral so reform, can that yes. you use that message again? Can you resell that message? Oh God, yeah. Well, well you know the one, the one thing political advertising often isn't is innovative. Hmm. You go back to the stuff that's tried and true because it's being driven by the data that the various uh, polling outfits and and gurus who assist the parties are are looking at when they are assessing their opponents and determining what their vulnerabilities are. And the interesting thing about the historica. Uh, parody from the conservative party that what what the the parody is around liberal self-interest and incompetence and and liberals doing things for liberals best benefit that's long been established as an area of vulnerability for the liberals when the liberals are seen as being about them first they lose that's how stephen harper came to power how brian mulroney came to power so Andrew Shearer and his team are going back to a well uh, that has always produced a winning water. Uh, when uh, Shearer was speaking uh, last week or so in front of his party, I guess ahead of uh, the new session, he was joking that people keep bugging him because he smiles so much. Uh, how does he use that to his advantage in a party which some have painted as mean-spirited? I, I think using that word I used a moment ago on on Trudeau expectations, right? I mean, Sheer in his caucus address talked about being the guy who grew up, you know, through average means, had a paper route, the guy who drives the minivan. I'm not, uh, I'm not a charismatic, um, high profile character like the prime minister. So I think he's going to try and live his brand, right? And I think that's smarter for him. Because if he tries to compare himself to Justin Trudeau in style or approach, he's going to get creamed. I think that's been part of Jagmeet Singh's problem and the NDP's problem. They elected somebody who, in style and appearance and performance, purported to be the prime minister. Andrew Scheer can't mimic Justin Trudeau and win. He's got to be his own person for however bland or not that might be. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Talk soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, so those who didn't want the uh, nipple stories, uh, try to stay with us because we're going to talk about economic growth in Asia. I know it's not quite Nipplegate, but I found it extremely fascinating. Uh, especially when I saw a weekend article in the Globe and Mail on this. And uh, oddly enough, 
uh, on Friday, we were talking about uh, this very topic to Marvin Ryder. As, you know, he comes in here and, and brilliantly tries to uh, explain the world to me uh, in layman's terms. The, the Globe and Mail article, Welcome to the Asian Century. Asia is the most powerful force reshaping the world today, world order today. Asians once again see themselves as the center of the world and its future. Marvin was touching on this the other day and trying very hard to explain it. Let's bring him back and uh, get his comments on this. Marvin Ryder, business uh, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here, and I am wearing a shirt. Just good, to good for you know. And no I, nipples here. I make sure it's done up all the way to the top, there, Marvin. All we want to see is the whiteness of your undershirt, and that's it. Nothing more risque, please. I will. I'll make sure of that. Thank goodness, you know you've got you've got TV prowess here, so you know what's looking good and what's not here. We we appreciate that. So and we. Were, I know you're. I know you're there in the tank top and shorts, <laughs> but I'm I'm in the full shirt, done up to the top. <laughs> All right, good for you. So we were talking about this. I, I'm sure you, yep. you 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 took a peek at this article. This was yep. basically what you were trying to explain to us on Friday. No. Yes. So let's set this up in a couple of ways. Today on this planet of ours, Earth. There are seven and a half million people. Of those seven and a half million people, five, seven, seven and a half billion people, five billion of those live in Asia. And when you look at Asia as a total, it's a market that is going to dominate the 21st century. The 20th century, we can argue, belonged to North America, more precisely the United States. The 19th century belonged to Europe, again, more precisely Great Britain. But as we look at the 21st century in its totality, the whole hundred years that end in 2099, it's going to belong to Asia. And if I make a mistake when I talk about it, I tend to then use only examples about China. Right. But I, to be, be fair, we're talking about all of Asia. China today is 1.4 billion people. Just behind it, India at 1.3 billion. India likely to become the second largest economy in the world before the year 2050. And then by the end of this century, possibly surplanting the United States for number three could be Indonesia. And nobody's talking about Indonesia, but that's the reality. And that's what if you keep wondering, why does uh, Prime Minister Trudeau or before him, Mr. Harper, why do these premiers keep doing these junkets to Asia? It's not necessarily because of their importance today. But as we look to 2025 and 2040 and 2060, it's going to be their importance tomorrow. We have to build those bridges today. Uh, You talked about 19th century and Europe, 20th century North America, 21st century Asia. How how does uh, the UK, Europe, North America, how do they survive this transition through this century? How do do they adapt to it? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. So here's the first problem that we have in the, quote, developed world, whether it's North America or Europe, is that population-wise, we are not uh, a sustainable population. And by that, I mean that a couple needs to have roughly 2.1 children to keep the population steady. If you have more than 2.1 children on average, the population grows. And if you have less than 2.1, the population will shrink. Uh, in, in Canada, in the United States, the birth rate is something around 1.2 children per couple. Uh, in, in parts of like Italy is less than one, one child per couple. Uh, and so left to their own devices, these, eco- these economies are going to shrink because you're going to have fewer and fewer people spending money. The only way to fight that, other than telling people they should have children, is uh, to have a robust 
immigration policy. And certainly that's what we've chosen to do in Canada. Roughly 300, 320,000 people a year come into Canada. Uh, and from all walks of life, not just uh, people from Europe, but people from other parts of the world. And that's why Canada today is a much more diversified country than we were before. But that's not just a short-term measure. We're going to have to keep doing that to stay relevant. Here's the one bit of good news, though. As we bring in those people from those other cultures, they are the ones who can help us build bridges back. It wasn't that hard for Canada in the 20th century to maintain links, not just to the United States, but to Europe, because we we had a common ancestry, British ancestry or French ancestry. We had roots in Europe. It wasn't that hard to do that. The new wave of immigration, which is coming from Asia, from the Arabic nations, which we'll call the Middle East, although technically that's still Asia, uh, they often use a different language, different character set in the alphabet, certainly a different religious tradition. It is not as natural for us to do business with China or India or, or Indonesia or Pakistan, wherever it happens to be. The good news, though, is that the new Canadians who come here are the ones who are leading the charge to build those bridges back to those economies, and they are going to help keep us relevant as this century unfolds. How does Donald Trump's plan of making America great again fit into this? Does, uh, is, is, are, is America aware that this is happening? Uh, no. And, and so let me try that a couple of ways, if I can, Scott. Let me start with the previous example that it, the, eight, the 19th century really began to Europe, belonged to Europe, and particularly Great Britain. In the year 1900, the sun never set on the British Empire. Well, certainly by the time we get to 1999, the sun sat on the British Empire. And you would recall that poor old England goes through two world wars, and by the 1950s was really in the doldrums. The power had seeped away. They weren't the most powerful economy in the world. They, they didn't command the same kind of respect on the world stage. That led to some great music in the 1960s, but also a lot of people who were trying to find themselves. And it really took until 1980s when Margaret Thatcher came along to say, okay, folks, straighten up here. We may not be the dominant economy in the world, but we still have a role to play on the world stage. And Britain, Britain finally found itself again. I have been hoping that the United States wouldn't have to go through that, that the United States would understand that there's a natural evolution to this order, and rather than fighting to cling on to the number one spot in terms of the economy, it would find a way to make the transition and keep itself relevant. Obama was trying to do that. Even George W. Bush was trying to do that. Even if you looked at their foreign policy, they were always trying to do things with coalitions. It wasn't the United States being the police force to the world. It was the coalition using the United Nations and things like this. Trump wants to go back. He wants to go back to the way the world was in the 50s and 60s when the United States could control all these things and we were the dominant force. Even now, Scott, the, the trade with China that ended on the weekend were really about China backing off becoming number one. I want you to shrink your economy. I want you to buy less. I want you to be less important on the world stage so that America can stay number one. And China nodded and smiled politely and are going to ignore them because that's just not the way it works. And that's the problem with Trump's policies. They're really policies from 50 years ago. They don't recognize the changing economic realities of the world. How far does that set the U.S. back not preparing for this? I mean, what will their future role be? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And really, again, the, the trick is, well, how many presidents have this worldview? Both Trump uh, excuse me, both Obama and George W. Bush were trying to set that stage, uh, still fighting for America, still trying to, you know, do what it can to remain powerful, but realizing that power was seeping away. 
I think the next president of the United States, whether that's a person elected in 2020 or 2024, will likely have a different view of the world. But Trump is, he's a populist president, and this is what happens when people feel things slipping away. It doesn't feel like the way the world was 30, 40 years ago. I like the way the world was then. Let's go back. When you try to explain to them that's just not possible, their natural inclination is to fight the change. But sooner or later, you have to accept it. And I'm hoping it's sooner, because then once you understand that you aren't number one, but you can be number two or three, still have a very important role to play, you just change your mindset. And that's the important part of America. But for the moment, Trump is leading a wave that wants to ignore that mindset. And for decades, we've tried to lift the rest of the world up to a level that North America is. Now, slowly right. that's happening. I mean, how do you, you can't stop that. I mean, the wave well, is coming. It's not, yes, it's not so much slowly. It's coming. You know, uh, some of the best educated people in the world on tests are not coming from Canada and the United States, but from Korea, or they're coming from Vietnam uh, in terms of literacy rates. In some places, they exceed what we have here in North America. I'm not saying we've gotten complacent. We invested in these countries. We tried to help them out. And in many places, it's worked very well that we've created our own competition for the future. Uh, we can't take that genie out of that bottle. We can't reverse it. Uh, and by the way, with all of that, there's still this one, if I'll call it a dark spot on the horizon, that's Africa. After 100 years of investing in Africa, Africa is the only continent that's worse off in the year 2000 than it was in 1900. Much of that money got siphoned off and didn't do the work it wanted to. So we still have some challenges as we're looking to bridge the first world and the third world. But in Asia, it's all worked brilliantly, and now we need to find a new, new methodology, whatever that is. If I can give you a quick example, Scott, we talked about this last week as well. I think for China, the question is, are you ready to assume the mantle of leadership? Hmm. And a great example there is North Korea, uh, North Korea only exists because of the kindness of China. China keeps trading with it where the rest of the world will not. And if Kim Jong-un persists on a nuclear program and what have you, is this what you want, China? If it isn't, then don't wait for the United States. You're going to have to step up. You're going to have to start doing some things. I realize you don't want to become the world's police force, and maybe America overstepped its economic authority as it became the world's police force. But with great power comes great responsibility. We learned that in those Spider-Man movies. So you've got to step up and start doing things. And it would be interesting to watch to see how long China takes to realize, to assume this mantle of leadership. That's an interesting uh, angle to all of this. Uh, considering what's in the news between Canada and China of late, we have to remember, as you pointed out earlier, um, Asia is just not solely China. How do these Asian countries work together to, to, to stay on a common path and make this work? Well, you know, again, and I'm not a, I'm probably the wrong person to make this comment, but culturally, culturally, Asia seems, if there's a common thread between, say, India and Vietnam and Japan and China, culturally, they, they do seem to be much more group-oriented. Let's help each other out. If you think of Japan, for instance, it's not unusual to have three generations of a family living under one roof, whereas in Canada and the United States, we tend to all want to get out on our own and not, you know, we'll support each other emotionally, but we're not going to be under the same roof together. Uh, that's not the model there. So, for instance, in, in the last century, there have been dozens and dozens of conferences 
to cooperate between the nations, to help each other out, to, to think about infrastructure and planning. Uh, they have an Asian, for instance, space agency that's not strictly a Chinese space agency, which competes against the Russian space agency, but you know, they, they are much more communal in their thinking and helping one another out. We call it cooperation, where we're going to cooperate. We're still competitors, but we're also going to cooperate for the betterment of the, of the, of the group. And I think that's a key aspect of their culture that we don't have as much in North America. We've talked many times, uh, you know, walk around your house and, and all of the products, goods and, and such that have originated uh, from China. As this continues through the 21st century, what will, what will that heartland, heartland of America look like? What, will, what is their role that were once these manufacturing hubs and so on and so forth as they move to other parts of the world? Mm-hmm. So the way I like to explain it to people is that if you think of the world of Star Trek, which is out in the year 2300, 2400, and in theory, by that point, the world's economic differences have pretty much all disappeared, then what each economy does is whatever it can do better than anybody else. In other words, there was a time that we in Canada had our own version of every industry possible. We even you know, brought in cotton and wove our own sheets and wove our own uh, fabric to make shirts from it, even though we didn't make any cotton in Canada. We'd say that's crazy today. So each country is going to find its niches. Now, one of the things about Canada that I think we'll always have is we are a relatively small population in a very, very big country. One of our biggest challenges then is communicating with one another. We were a pioneer in satellite communications with microwave communications, many other aspects of communication technology, not necessarily the handsets, the smartphones themselves, but the infrastructure behind that that allows all 36 million Canadians to reach each other very quickly. That's stuff that we can export but things where we don't have an advantage, like injection molded plastic, is, is cheaper other places, we are doing the right thing. We're saying it's cheaper to buy from them, so we'll buy from them, but we're going to develop expertise that they can't reproduce, and that will become the basis of trade. Uh, I think the other thing that we think of when we look at Star Trek is the world of the future. The definition of work has got to change. I don't know how fast it's going to change. If you look at the last century, at the start of the century, many people worked 60-hour work weeks. By the end of the century, we're down to 35-hour work weeks. I don't know if we're even going to be talking about 35-hour work weeks in the latter half of this century. Maybe they are 24-hour work weeks, three eight-hour shifts. What will that mean in terms of compensation? Maybe the concept of money changes in a digital world. In a way, it already did in Europe with the creation of the euro. Each country didn't have to have its own currency. They bought into a common currency. I think as we become more of a world order as opposed to a North American order or a European order, those are issues that are going to come up and we have to deal with them. Uh, you talked about China being ready to be a gatekeeper of the world. Uh, we're talking about transparency, uh, their laws and such, yep. and just the way they do business. How will that have to change? In order, What will the world be like under that umbrella as China being the world power? Well, I, I, think it will, I don't think it will be that much different, in part because it's China that's having to adapt to this. There's an article in today's paper that uh, China feels that its economy is in a bit of a slump. Now, in China, a slump is when your economy only grows at 3% a year. In Canada, if we fall to 1%, we consider it a slump. So what, what is the government in China thinking of doing is cutting taxes on the poorest citizens. Wait a minute. I've heard that story before, cutting taxes. Who, who came up with that line from a couple of years ago? Well, wait a minute. Did you know that they pay taxes in China? Do you know there's a tax rate? And I, I think most of us think somehow the system is 
bizarrely different than what we have here, and it really isn't. There's a lot more that we have in common, and, but in things like transparency, laws around uh, uh, intellectual property, copyrights, trademarks, etc., yes, China is going to modernize, and we're making it a condition to join these world clubs, whatever they happen to be, that you've got to get on this bandwagon. And I think for them it's just a matter of time. When is the right time? The China of 2019 is not the China of 1968. I remember when Trudeau went there, when we had a peek behind what was known as the bamboo curtain. This is not that China. In 50 years, it's changed quite radically. And I think there's more changes down the road, but it's happening at a pace that's almost unbelievable. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, thank you again for the time. Fascinating issue. Thank you so much. Will do. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.